0: Amen. Well, if you'll take your Bible and turn with me to John's gospel, we'll start actually tonight in John 7. Uh, We're going to be spending most of our time in John 8 and and, uh, 9, but uh, we want to start in John 7 tonight. We're going to be talking about the second of the I Am statements where Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Um, I've told this story some time back, but um. There was a World War II correspondent named Ernie Pyle. He was very well known. Um, He worked in the the European theater and then in the Pacific theater. He was a Pulitzer Prize winning correspondent. Um, He eventually uh, died. He was killed in the Battle of Okinawa near the end of World War II. But he saw a lot of suffering and a lot of death, as you can only imagine. And at one point when he was covering all the the carnage and the bloodshed around him, he, he wrote this to one of his friends. He says, there's no sense to the struggle, but there's no choice but to struggle. It seems to me that living is futile, and death the final indignity. And then he concluded with these words, I wish you'd shine any of your light in my direction. God knows I've run out of light. And you can imagine that was probably the sentiment of a lot of people over there in uh, World War II and, in, and other wars as well, just the, kind of the, almost the futility of it and just kind of run out of light. And if you've got any light, you know, send it my direction. And I think that's where a lot of people are in our world today. They were certainly in that condition back when Jesus came. And that makes this statement of Jesus, you know, I am the light of the world, just stand out for us in brilliance. Because this world we live in has run out of light. And every person who doesn't know Jesus Christ has run out of light. In fact, they never had it. And in John's gospel, we see that God has sent to us the light that we need in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. Um, If you know anything about John's gospel, we we read this passage every year at our Christmas Eve candlelight service. But John's gospel begins with uh, these two twin themes that kind of go through his gospel, life and light that Jesus is life for those who are dead, and He's light to those who are in darkness. It says in John 1, 6, There came a man sent from God, his name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light, that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but He came to bear witness of the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. And this is a theme that runs through John's Gospel, this theme of uh, the light that shines Uh, in the darkness. And in John's gospel, I think, you know, when Jay introduced last week, I wasn't in here last week. I was about over teaching the high school group and junior high. Jay's doing that tonight. Um, I talked last week to them about, uh, about what is heaven like we're uh, we're answering some common questions. Uh, uh, Dust or Justin is uh, out of town uh, for a couple of weeks working on his doctor of ministry degree, so I got what is heaven like last week. Jay's over there tonight talking about why did God allow Adam and Eve to sin, so I got the better of those two deals. A lot easier to talk about what heaven's like than talk about the origin of evil or whatever. So, so anyway, I wasn't in here last week to hear Jay's introduction, but just a little bit about John's gospel. I know we talked about a few of these things, but In the introduction uh, is chapter 1, John focuses on Jesus' uh, early ministry there and the calling of a few of his disciples. And when you think about John's gospel, the gospel of John focuses on the ministry of Jesus in Jerusalem. The other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke often called the synoptic gospels, which means to, to see the same way, those three gospels focus on the Galilean ministry of Jesus, But in John's gospel, it's focusing on his ministry primarily down in Jerusalem. So after the the first chapter, kind of an introduction, in chapters 2 through 4 of John's gospel, you have what scholars often call the Cana cycle. Because Jesus performs his first sign in Cana there, turning water into wine. Then in chapter 3, you have the story of Nicodemus. And in chapter 4, you have the Samaritan woman. And then at the end of that chapter, Jesus is back in Cana again and heals a nobleman's son. So it's called the Cana cycle because He starts in Cana and then it ends there. But then beginning in John 5, what we have is Jesus and His relation to the Jewish feasts. Because if you go back to John chapter 5 and look there, at the beginning it says, after these things there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So from chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, all this section, really on into chapter 11, it's this ministry of Jesus in Jerusalem. And it's, Jesus would primarily go there, obviously, for the feasts. Jesus lived in Galilee, ministered in a very small area there, but as all Jewish males were required for Passover, uh, Pentecost, and tabernacles, He would come down to Jerusalem for these feasts. So that's what you have in this section. He, in chapter 5, he's there for a feast of the Jews. It doesn't say what one it was. Many believe it was a Passover. But you come over to chapter 6 of John's Gospel, and in verse 3 it says, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. This says, now the Passover of the feast of the Jews uh, was at hand. Now this was Passover in, in uh, A.D. 32 which is uh, the, the, the final Passover Jesus is killed the next year in 33 AD. So this is his final Passover uh, before, before he's killed. And, of course, what you have in John 6 is Jesus looking back to the time in the wilderness, to the manna that came from heaven, and he says, I'm the bread of life. He's looking back to uh, that time they were uh, in the wilderness. And he talks about bread, and, of course, bread is satisfying and sustaining And you have this whole what's called the bread of life discourse. Now go down to chapter 7 and verse 2. And it says, Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was at hand. So this is the feast of tabernacles. And chapter 7 and chapter 8 and chapter 9 kind of follows on with that. And then go all the way down to chapter 10 of the book of John. And uh, chapter 10 and verse 22, and it says, At that time, the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. So that's Hanukkah or the Feast of Lights. So, this large central section of John's gospel is Jesus and the Jewish feasts Passover in in AD 32, um, then tabernacles, the fall of AD 32, the last fall that Jesus was alive and then December of A.D. 32, which is when Hanukkah takes place. And after that, we have the raising of Lazarus from the dead, and then we go into the final week and the post-resurrection ministry of Jesus. So this middle part of John's gospel, and you might want to read through it, just kind of read John 5 through 9 or 10 and there, this large middle section. And what you have in here, a lot of signs Jesus does, remember in in, uh, John 1 through 11 is often called the book of signs, because Jesus does seven unique signs or miracles, and they're called signs in John's gospel, because while they're miracles like signs, they point to something beyond the sign itself, or beyond the miracle itself. So you have these seven signs in chapters 1 to 11, but also interwoven into the book of John, you have seven I am statements. And they go on a little bit further there's one in chapter 14 and the final one is in chapter 15. so john loves sevens you got seven signs the seven i ams when you get to the book of revelation the number seven occurs 54 times so john loves uh, the, the sevens here but these seven i ams are these seven identifying statements of jesus and who he is. So what I want to do tonight is look at the saying of Jesus, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But I want to look at the setting of this, because really all of these I am statements of Jesus have a very rich setting around them, that if we see the context and setting, I think uh, these passages mean, mean a lot more to us. So in chapter 7, verse 2, it says, now the feast of the Jews, the feast of Booz, was at hand. So this is in, uh, in October, the fall of A.D. Uh, 32. And this is the final fall feast. It's the, actually the final one of the seven feasts that are given and outlined in Leviticus chapter 23. Now, seven feasts are laid out there. Now, the Jews later on, Two later feasts were developed. In the book of Esther, you have the Feast of Purim. And then later on in the intertestamental period, you have the Feast of, Bo- of, uh, of, of uh, Lights or Feast of Dedication known as Hanukkah. So those are kind of two other ones that were later added. But back in Torah, and the Torah, you have seven, uh, these seven great feasts. Now, you'll notice in uh, chapter 7, it's the Feast of Booze, and Jesus has some interaction here with the, the people who are there. But in in John chapter 7 and verse 37, it says, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out. So this is the the final day of the Feast of of Booze or Feast of Tabernacles. Now back in that day, the Feast of Tabernacles was full of pageantry and fueled with all kinds of, of expectation. It was called by the Jews the season of our rejoicing, because they believed the promise of the Messianic Kingdom could be fil- fulfilled during that time. Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, called, it was also called Sukkot, uh, marked the end of the religious calendar that began in the spring with Passover. So Passover began the Jewish feast, and the focus of Passover was on redemption. And the final one of the Jewish feasts was tabernacles, and the focus of that or the theme of that was what was restoration. And again, this was one of the the seven feasts that, or one of the three feasts that all of the the male, the Jewish males, were were, uh, required to attend. So what they would do during Feast of Booths or tabernacles is they would live in temporary booths, and they would gather at the sanctuary every day for a seven-day celebration as they gathered there in Jerusalem. And again, this is the final feast of tabernacles that Jesus celebrated while He was on earth. He'll die the next spring. This is the fall of, of A.D. 32. So what happened is the, these caravans of Jewish pilgrims from, uh, from Israel and even from other places uh, would make aliyah. That is, it means to go up. They went up to Jerusalem. And they'd be filled with thanksgiving and gladness and expectancy. And along the way, remember, they would sing those songs of ascent. We looked at one of those last week on Sunday morning, Psalm one twenty through one thirty four. And when they would arrive in the city of Jerusalem, uh, they would go to the homes of friends and relatives. Many of them would who would and they would accept even the hospitality of strangers. But the rest of the people would pitch their tents all over the city, and they would erect these the sukkot or their booth kind of similar to what farmers uh, would live in during the annual grape and olive harvest. So all over the place, there's these temporary dwellings. They built them out of willow or olive branches, decorated them with, with grapevines and fruit. And the choice locations to build these were rooftops of houses um, in courtyards or just out in the streets. They'd put couches and things inside of them where they could eat there. And and one of the the main features of the Feast of Tabernacles was a a water-drawing ritual that took place every morning. So every morning for the seven days, this water-drawing ritual would occur. Let me read uh, the way one writer describes this. He says, standing at the top southwest corner of the Temple Mount, if you've been to the Temple Mount, you know where that area is where they would blow the trumpets, that southwest corner. Uh, The southern steps are still there today. Um, a, pr- a priest would blow the shofar with all of his might, announcing the start of the festival. Suddenly, a priest would exit from the water gate on the south side of the main temple building. Carrying a golden pitcher, he would lead a joyous musical procession to the pool of Siloam down in the old city of David. And if you've been to Israel with us, your southern steps are there. We'd go down to the, the pool of Siloam. At that pool, he would plunge the pitcher into the water and recite Isaiah twelve three which would say, therefore with joy we shall draw waters out of the well of salvation. And accompanying the chant were people playing flutes, a, a little reed flute called the Flute of Moses, because you remember the name Moses means to draw out, because you know, Moses was drawn up out of the water. And so all this celebration was taking place as the, the pilgrims were making their way then back to the temple. And uh, they would blow the shofar, um, in, in the Jewish Talmud, it says this, he who has not seen the rejoicing at the place of the water drawing has never seen rejoicing in his life. Just tremendous outpouring of praise that took place there. Uh, they would make their way back there to the temple. The women would sing the great Hallel Psalms, Psalms 113 to 118. Uh, the Levites would stand on the semicircular uh, stairs in the court singing and playing, uh, playing music and singing together. All kinds of celebration taking place. But following, the, the priest would come back and he would take the water and he would pour it on the altar and wine would be poured there with it. And what this represented primarily was the water that God had provided for them in the wilderness. So, all throughout this section here with these feasts, it's harking back to the wilderness journey. So, John 6 with Passover. Uh, Jesus talks about the manna that's come down from heaven, and he says, I'm the bread of life. So Jesus is the fulfillment uh, of what they had in the wilderness. And you have here this water being poured out that pictures God's provision of water uh, for the people in the wilderness. So the water, this took place for uh, every day for seven days. But following all this singing and shouting and chanting and rejoicing and all of that, there would be a time of silence. Uh, the people would would fall silent and they'd listen to the wind and they'd reflect on the spiritual significance of this water ritual, which looked back again to the water from the rock, but also was symbolic to them of uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit and how He would refresh them in their day, just as the water refreshed the people in the wilderness. So there was this time of, of silence that would take place. And many people believe, it says, on the last day, the great day of the feast, gone down and gotten the picture of the Pool of Siloam. They've come back. There's all this celebrating and singing and shouting and rejoicing. And it falls silent, dead silent in the place as everyone is reflecting. And many people believe it. it's at that moment when this customary hush came over the crowd that Jesus stood up and said, if any man is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. Now, you talk about a a bold statement to make in that environment. Jesus is saying, look what that rock was in the wilderness and providing for you. That's what I am. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water, which again is a picture here of the Holy Spirit, which was part of what they were celebrating at Tabernacles. Tabernacles. And then it says here in verse 39, but this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the the anticipated refreshment that they would receive by the Holy Spirit, Jesus comes and says he's the fulfillment of ultimately offering them living water. And through him, they can have access uh, to the Holy Spirit. So that's the first thing that happens here on this celebration of tabernacles. But th- so that happened every morning. They'd go get the water and bring that up there. But there was another part of the Feast of Tabernacles that took place every evening. And so every evening um, at the Feast of Tabernacle, lights were, were, uh, were uh, lit there, these huge candelabra. So every afternoon uh, for seven days, the priests and the pilgrims would gather in the court of women in the temple. And there were four huge, large oil lamps there that were lit these seven evenings of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, if you want to put that slide up there, I've got a couple slides I found of what this would have looked like. Hopefully, it's not too dark. But this is the temple area. And all this area around here that's black around here, that's uh, that's the court of the Gentiles. But the gate over here, often called the beautiful gate, led inside the court of women. And it was also called the treasury because that's where you had these uh, 13 big trumpet-shaped uh, receptacles where people would go in there and give. It's kind of an ancient form of designated giving. You know, you'd put it in this one for this thing or kind of divide it up. But there were these. you can see those four candlesticks that are there, four huge menorah, and they were 75 feet tall. And so priests would climb up there on ladders, young priests, very, very athletic priests, would climb up there every afternoon or early in the evening with 10-gallon pitchers of oil. You think about climbing 75 feet with that. And they would dump this oil in there. And once it was all in there and everything was set, they would, they would have a, a torch would be given to them. They'd go down and get a torch and come and light that. And it's kind of like if you turn your gas grill on a little bit and it kind of goes a little bit too long before you push the button, you know, and it kind of blows up. I mean, you think about all that oil up there, huge wick. And they would light these uh, four uh, candelabra at, every night. And then they would be put out on the next morning, and then they would light them uh, again. And it was said in that, oh yeah, there's one other slide I've got after this one, just kind of the same thing, but you can look down on it again. See, you can see all around the court of Gentiles. Then you have that court of women that's there where those candelabra are. Then you go on into the, where the, the, the court of Israel, the priests, and then the holy place and holy of holies. Um, But you can see how, you know, these things were just massive. And it said in that day that those lamps were so bright that the light from there penetrated every courtyard in Jerusalem. There wasn't any place in Jerusalem where the light from this wasn't shining into their homes. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, going and watching uh, football games here in Oklahoma in small towns. When you go there on Friday night to watch a game, the lights of the stadium light up every house in town, basically, every yard. I mean, the place isn't that big and these lights, you know, you don't you don't have to ask directions, just how do you get to the town and you just follow wh- where the lights are is the stadium. But as the women would watch this this lighting of this from the upper upper terrace. Uh, they would dance before the oil lamps, and, and men the Bible, say, or the uh, Jewish uh, Mishnah says, men of piety and good works would dance before the oil lamps with burning torches in their hands, singing songs and praises. Countless Levites would play harps, lyres, cymbals, and trumpets and instruments of music. And oftentimes, some of the nights, they would stay up all night long there in the courtyard in this area where the light was rejoicing and and singing uh, all night long. And what this pictured for them was the Shekinah glory of God. Remember again, in the wilderness, they had the the pillar of cloud by day, but the pillar of fire by night It was the presence of God. And remember in the tabernacle, God's presence dwelled there, His, His visible presence in this glory, this, this uh, fiery cloud. And when Solomon's temple was built, the glory of God came and filled it. But when that temple was destroyed and this temple was rebuilt uh, by, uh, as by uh, uh, Zerubbabel and, and, and uh, others who were there, um, the temple was rebuilt that the glory of God never came and filled that temple. So it was kind of their way once a year to light these huge menorah to signify the fact that God's glory had been there in that place. So the Shekinah glory is pictured by this. And so in John 6, you have the reference back to the wilderness and manna. John 7, you have the reference back to the wilderness and the water that God provided. John 8, you have a a reference back to uh, the the shining of the, the glory of God and the pillar of fire. And so most people believe that it says here in verse 37, the last day of the great feast in verse 37, if you keep reading here on down, that chapter 8 and verse 12 is connected to that last day. Now, I don't want to go into this tonight, but most most scholars, in fact, almost unanimously most uh, really good scholars believe that the passage in John 8, 1 to 11 about the adulterous woman was not originally in John's gospel. I won't go into the reasons for that, but most of your Bibles will say that. So you can kind of go from the end of John chapter 7 and go right to verse 12 of chapter 8. And therefore, Jesus spoke to them saying, now think about this, these huge 75-foot menorah have been there, you know, lit for, you know, every night, and it's the last night, and so many people believe now that those menorah now are, are out. They've been extinguished, and, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not going to be relit again. And so Jesus, earlier in the day, has said, you know, if any man thirsts, come to me and drink. Now he stands up and says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So it's almost as if Jesus is saying, remember the Shekinah glory of God has not been in the the Jewish temple for 600 years. I mean, the temple hasn't been there for a lot of that time, but it departed from Solomon's temple before the Babylonians came. So many would have the idea that Jesus is standing up in some ways and saying, I'm back. Now, I am the light of the world. What that Shekinah glory represented in the wilderness, that's who I am. Now, this is a, an obvious patent claim that Jesus makes to deity. and Because he doesn't just say here, I am a light of the world. He says, I am the light. And he doesn't just say, I am the light of Israel. He says, I am the light of the world. And so, what this symbolizes is, is that Jesus was the visible presence of God, and also that He was the great light, the Messiah they were looking for, that Isaiah chapter 9 says uh, would come and uh, would shine into the darkness. So, this is an incredible statement of the deity of Jesus Christ. In fact, G. Campbell Morgan, a, a great uh, Bible teacher from a past generation says, these are the words of the most impudent blasphemer that ever spoke, or the words of God incarnate. It's one or the other. I mean, he's either the most impudent blasphemer that ever lived, or he's God incarnate. For anyone to stand up there, knowing all this imagery that's behind this, and saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. It's 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 a claim of exclusivity. In fact, a lot of these statements are in a few weeks, we'll look at, "I am the resurrection, or we'll look at, "I am the way, the truth and the life, the ultimate state of ex- statement of exclusivity. But all of these really carry that in many ways, because he's saying, "I am the light of the world, I and I alone am the light of the world." And notice he says, "He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life." So the one condition to have his light in your life is to follow him." And probably here in John's Gospel, that's just a synonym for believing in Jesus or for trusting in Him. If you believe in me, you'll have uh, the light of life. You won't walk in darkness. I was going to read this a couple weeks ago on Sunday morning, but I, I uh, an uh, illustration or a story I ran across because it fits really well at the beginning of the year. But in his in his 1939 Christmas Eve address to the British Commonwealth. Uh, king George the VI uh, made his closing remarks. And uh, World War II had, had begun just a few months before, and uh, he himself, King George VI, was dying of cancer. So here a man is who's the, the king of England. He's dying of cancer. World War II has just begun. I mean, he, he sees the dark days ahead, you know, for, for his nation. And he quoted a poem by Minnie Louise Haskins, and these were the last words of King George VI to his people. He said this, I said to the man at the gate of the year, it's kind of like you're going into the new year and there's a gate there and there's a man standing there. I said to the man at the gate of the year, get me a light that I may walk safely into the unknown. And he said to me, go out into the darkness and put your hand in the hand of God and it shall be to you better than the light and safer than the unknown. It's a beautiful statement, isn't it? You say at the man at the gate, man, you get me a light, man. I'm going out into the unknown as you go into a new year. He says, go out into the darkness, put your hand in the hand of God, and it will be better than light and better than the known. And that's what Jesus is for you and me. That's what he says here. If you follow me, you won't walk in darkness you'll have the light of life. If we put our hand in his hand, it's better than the light and it's safer than the known as we go into a new year trusting in him. Now, there's a lot that can be said about this whole passage. It's it's interesting. After Jesus says, I am the light of the world, notice verse 13, the Pharisees therefore said to him, you are bearing witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Now, they have one point here that, that's valid, and that is anybody can say I'm the light of the world, right? I and mean, anybody can get up, a person can say anything. There's been all kinds of crazy people through history that make all kinds of claims about themselves. Now, when they say your witness is not true, they're not correct in that, obviously. The witness of Jesus is true. But what Jesus goes on to say is it does take... A matter is confirmed in in the the mouth of two or three witnesses. And Jesus says, you're right. It does take more than one witness. You have me and you have the Father. And that even makes them more mad than when he says that. And then they go to him in verse 19 because he talks about how, hey, the Father gives witness. And then they say to him in verse 19, where is your Father? Now, that's probably a sneer against Jesus because of the circulating rumors probably from his birth that he was born illegitimately. Where is your father, by the way? But you see here the different responses that the Pharisees there reject Jesus. Um other people have some you know response to hear more from him later, and other people will have more of a a, of a of a response to him of acceptance. In fact, if you look down at verse 30 of chapter 8, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So there's different responses as there always is. Uh, to what Jesus says. But I want you to look at verse 24, where Jesus says to them, uh, this is another just profound statement. I said, therefore, to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. The the word he isn't there. A lot of translations say, unless you believe I am he. It's unless you believe I am it's a claim to be deity or Yahweh Himself. If you don't believe I am, you're going to die in your sins. And again, you know, people that believe Jesus is just a way to God, or you know, Jesus would never send anybody to hell. They need to read verses like this. He say, "If you don't believe that I am, you're going to die in your sins." You go on down to John chapter eight. He has this long, ongoing battle with the the leaders there. On down in. Uh, Verse 8, chapter 8, and verse 56. Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The Jews therefore said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. When people say Jesus never claimed to be God, they need to read John's gospel. And the Pharisees knew what he was saying. Look at the next verse. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. They realized what he just said. These I am statements of Jesus. He says, I'm the light of the world. But he says, if you don't believe I am, you'll die in your sins. Before Abraham was, I am. Clear statements of deity and not only deity, but pre-existence. That he pre-existed before he was even born. Now, again... Anyone can get up and just say, I'm the light of the world, right? So the next chapter, chapter 9, is going to give the validation and the confirmation, or it's an illustration of the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. He proves it because he gives sight uh, to a man who was blind from birth. So again, you have to connect these, these passages here. Notice chapter 9, verse 1, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And you go on down um, to verse 6, when he said this, he spat on the ground, he made clay of the spittle, applied the clay to his eyes, and said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, isn't that interesting? Where did the priest go get the water to bring to Feast of Tabernacles? Went down to the pool of Siloam. Again, which spoke of uh, the, the refreshment of the water in the wilderness, but the refreshment they received from the Holy Spirit. Jesus sends this man down to the Pool of Siloam to wash. He comes back. He can see, and of course, this sparks, as it often does, or ignites a big controversy and a firestorm there with uh, the Jewish leaders and Jesus. But again, chapter 9 is here because it's validating the claim that Jesus has made that He is the light of the world. In fact, in verse um, 5, He repeats the claim, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And He proves it now by giving sight to a man who's born blind. He validates that. Now, this is a fascinating chapter, chapter 9, because the Jewish leaders are bound and determined to get Jesus, but he's healed a guy blind from birth that everyone knows about, and they can't deny it. But one thing you might go down, I've outlined, I've underlined this in my Bible in a bunch of places, but when Jesus is talking here with the Pharisees, they keep making statements. They keep saying, we know, we know, we know. The Pharisees keep claiming everything they know, and you'll keep finding that the blind man and his parents keep saying, we don't know. For instance, uh, in verse uh, 21, they said, we don't know, or, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Um, a second time, they called to the man uh, who was inborn, born blind and said, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner, talking about Jesus. And notice uh, the, the, the man who's been healed in verse 25, he says, I don't know one thing, but one thing I do know that whereas I was blind, now I can see. That's what I know. And you'll go on down like to verse 29. Notice the arrogance of the Pharisees. We know. Down in verse 31, we know. They keep saying over and over again the things that they know. And they take this man eventually and that's been healed, that was born blind, and they they throw him out of the synagogue. He's ex synagogue He's kicked out of the synagogue. He's excommunicated. And that's going to be the setting, by the way, for next week. We're going to look at where Jesus says, I am the door. This man that gets kicked out of the synagogue, Jesus goes and finds him and welcomes him into his fold. So you can see these chapters are all related one to the other. But I like uh, Warren Wiersbe in his uh, commentary on the book of John calls John chapter 9, the blind man calls their bluff. I really like that. (laughs) The blind man calls their bluff. But the whole conclusion to all of this is down in verse 41 of chapter 9, Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. People that go around in life claim, I can see fine. Those are the people that remain in their sins. They're blind. The people that Jesus came to save are the people who will admit that they're blind and they can't see and they need him. He says, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. So this whole idea of Jesus being light is carried through. And one more point, it's interesting how this carries through. We'll talk next week about where Jesus says, I am the door. One of the, uh, the next uh, I am statement, the third one there in chapter 10. Then you also have the fourth one where he says, I'm the good shepherd. But if you go all the way down again to chapter 10 and verse 22, the next and final feast here that's mentioned is feast of dedication or lights that would be in December every year. And this carries forward again the theme of Jesus being the light of the world because this was the feast of dedication or lights. You all know the story of the time in the intertestamental period between the two testaments with Judas Maccabeus and the restoration of the temple that was defiled by Antiochus Epiphanes, and they didn't have enough um, oil for the menorah to keep it lit, and it burned miraculously for eight days. And when they would celebrate Hanukkah, what they were celebrating is they were looking forward to the ultimate Judas Maccabeus who would come, the ultimate deliverer who would deliver them from their enemies. But one of the rituals at Hanukkah is there was was one candle in the middle of the menorah they would light first, and it was called the servant candle. And that servant candle would be used in each night to light one of the other candles and and go, go along lighting one more candle every night. And Jesus has come, He comes there to the Feast of Lights, and He is the ultimate deliverer, and He is the servant candle, if you will, who's come to light the lives of all who will trust in Him. And again, as He often, as He always does, what does Jesus say down in chapter 10, verse 30? I and the Father are one. Another statement of deity. You have I and the Father, that's two persons, The word one there means one in essence. There's two persons, I and the Father, but we are one. And notice in verse 31, the Jews took up stones again to stone him. They knew what he was saying again. But you see this whole uh, statement of Christ's deity all the way through here. You know, he says, I'm the bread of life back in chapter 6. He's claiming to be uh, the only one who can satisfy and sustain life. When he says, if any man's thirsty, let him come unto me and drink, he's claiming to be the only one who can bring ultimate refreshment spiritually to our lives. When he says, I am the light of the world, the one who follows me won't walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's claiming to be the only one uh, who can bring light uh, to darken sinful lives. And then all the way over here in Feast of Dedication, he claims to be the ultimate deliverer uh, of the Jewish people and that servant candle who can come and light uh, the lives of, of, of sinful people. So the significance of all of this is, obviously, the main point of all of this is the deity of Christ. You go to the very end of John's gospel, and he says, you know, these things have I written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. John's gospel is to drive people to the, the, the truth that Jesus is God in human flesh. And so the deity of Christ just stands out to us here. Again, he doesn't say I'm a light, but I am the light. And that statement demands a response. And again, we see the responses here. Some reject, some accept, and some said, you know, we'll kind of think about this and hear you later. But Jesus is claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the Shekinah glory, what that pillar of fire was in the Old Testament. He's claiming to be now the fulfillment of that. And Again, when he stands there in the temple and says, I'm the light of the world, he's saying, look, I'm back. The Shekinah glory of God, God's presence that is back here on the earth. And you know, it demands a response. And like you know, G. Campbell Morgan said, he's either the most impudent blasphemer that ever lived, or he is uh, God incarnate. And So that's, that's the ultimate significance here. But the second thing is, uh, for us, I think here tonight, is Jesus is the light and we're illumined by Him when we trust in Him and receive His light into our darkness, but then He wants us to go out and to shine our light that He gives to us into the darkness of this world. Um, I like the story about a little boy who forgot his lines in a Sunday school presentation, and his mother was down in the front row, as often happens, and she was prompting him with his lines. And um, one once, at one point, he forgets a line, and his mother is trying to help him because his memory's blank, and she, she's mouthing it with her lips, and he can't see her. So finally, she leans forward and says, I am the light of the world. And the little boy beams with a great feeling of, of pride and a clear voice, and he says, my mother is the light of the world. <clears throat> now, in one sense, that's true, isn't it? I mean, if you're a believer, we are the light of the world, having that reflected light that we have uh, through the Lord Jesus. Because Jesus tells his followers, you are the light of the world. And when he says that in Matthew chapter 5, you could translate that you and you alone are the light of the world. You and I are the only light that this world will ever see. We're the light of the world reflected through uh, from Jesus Christ. Someone uh, years ago was talking to a little child and they were asking, what's a saint? And the little kid was thought about it for a long time, and then finally, the child was at church and looked up at the the church there they were in with all the stained glass windows. And he says, "A saint is someone uh, that the light shines through." He had all these pictures of saints doing stained glass all over the walls, and that's really a, a good definition of what we are as saints. Uh, we're those uh, through whom uh, God's light shines. One thing that's fascinating to me about this tonight is this is the only one of the I am statements that Jesus gives to us. Isn't that interesting? Jesus said, I am the bread of life, but he never said, you are the bread of life. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He never said that about us. He he said, I'm the door. He never said you're the door. He said, I'm the good shepherd. He never said that of us. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He never says that about us. The only one of these titles that he gives to us, he says, I am the light of the world. And then he says of us, you are the light of the world. And the significance of that is, is that you and I are to go out and take the light that Christ has shined into our lives and shine that light out into the darkness. A lot of you know the name William Wilberforce. He was the great um, driving power behind the abolition of slavery in England. Um, A very uh, small, very small, very slight man. Um, He he was a powerful, though, in his uh, rhetoric and his speaking and his, his uh, glor- glorifying the Lord in his life. But he was a great philanthropist. He got a lot of other people involved in philanthropy and, and doing good. But Wilberforce said at one point in his life that he, he got a lot of these philanthropists and people together and, and to, to really have a, an impact on their culture and he said that the driving force of this or the goal that he wanted to see achieved was he wanted to make goodness fashionable. And that's a great statement, isn't he? He says we want to gather together and our goal is making goodness fashionable. And if there's ever a time in our country when we need to make goodness fashionable, it's today. And the only way that you and I can make goodness fashionable is, again, by allowing the light of Jesus Christ Uh, to shine in and through us. And the only reason we can shine into the darkness is because we've come and believed in Him and allowed Him to shine into our lives. There's a great verse over in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, The Apostle Paul wrote these words, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. That they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For and then he, and he says, "Yeah, who's the, blinded their eyes?" For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ crucified as Lord, and ourselves as your bond servants for Jesus' sake. Then listen to this. This is a, goes all the way back to Genesis chapter one. For God, who said, "Light shall shine out of darkness," has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So he's picturing us in our lives apart from God, like that dark formless mass there back in Genesis chapter 1. And just as God commanded the light to shine in the darkness, he says God has done the same thing with us, and he's shined in our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, and it's in the face of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the light of the world, but you and I are the lights of the world that he sent out into the darkness. And so it's my prayer for for us tonight that we can go out into this darkness and let our light shine. Let our, our, our light shine, our good deeds, so that men will glorify our Father who's in heaven. That we can make goodness fashionable in our culture. There's a lot of darkness out there. And if you and I go forth in the power of Jesus Christ we can shine light into this dark world. And tragically, there are a lot of people like old Ernie Pyle. Uh, they've run out of light. And now they need it desperately from us. And again, Jesus said, you and you alone are the light of the world. We're the, we're the only light that they're going to see. And we can tell them the message of Christ, but we can also uh, demonstrate that as well through, through the way we live our lives. Well, next time we're going to pick up in John 10, it's the same kind of chronology and we'll pick up the whole story. You know, the, the blind man gets kicked out of the temple, uh, out of the, uh, the, the synagogues of that day, and he's going to come and, and, and meet Jesus. And Jesus is going to invite him into his fold and tell him he's the door. So it's a great passage of the exclusivity of Christ. So let, let's pray together and we'll pick up there next time. Father, we, we come before you tonight and we thank you above everything else that in your grace and your mercy that you've shined into our hearts, our darkened hearts and lives, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, we look out into this world and we see so many people who are stumbling in the darkness. Uh, They've run out of light. And so, Father, we thank you that you've been pleased in your, your mercy and your grace to allow us to see who you are, and to see who we are, and to admit that we're blind, and to allow you to touch us so that we can see and be receiving and receive the light. Father, help us as we, we go out each day in, in, in our lives, not to just go by people who are in darkness and who are discouraged and depressed and who need some light. Father, energize us to tell them about the Lord Jesus and who he is and what he's done. Father, help us to let our light shine brightly so that men can see our good works and glorify our Father who's in heaven. Father, help us in our time, in our day, like Wilberforce did in his day, to make goodness fashionable as we let the light of Jesus Christ shine in and through us. Father, take us up and use us in this time in which we live, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.